Title of the message this evening, God's Design in Marriage and Family. This morning we spent our time uh, looking at husbands, speaking to husbands uh, about their role in the marriage, particularly that you ought to love your wives. And I told you that um, this, over the next several mornings we'll be focusing in on husbands and wives next week, wives, and then the next week husbands again, and then the next week wives. Uh, over the next two weeks in the evening, we're going to take a broader perspective uh, God's design in the marriage, God's design in family, why they are here, what God is doing through marriage and family. And then next week, we're going to naturally extend that. It's going to be the least applicable of our family series as we naturally extend to God's design in the church. And because we are here, I, I want to hit that, and it worked out fine to add it in. So this week, God's design in marriage and family. Next week, God's design in the church. And then in the evening service, we're going to have several messages about parenting. And so uh, you'll, you'll really want to make a point of being here for those. Of course, if you can't, you'll want to make a point of listening to them online as there's going to be some very important information for parents here and prospective parents, not just about parenting in general, but about parenting in this age. I'm going to preach a message on the most important thing a father can do for his son, and that is going to be about protecting a son's mind and purity in this digital age. And then I'm going to preach a message on the most important thing fathers can do to protect their little girls, and it's going to be right along that same vein of this over-sexualized culture and what fathers can do to protect their daughters in this over-sexualized culture. So all of that is coming up. I do have the itinerary on the back table. I encourage you to grab one if you are interested. But this week, God's design in marriage and family. Marriage was the first institution given by God and that in the Garden of Eden for the good of mankind and the perpetuation of the human race. From marriages come families, and the family is the backbone of society. It's a tool through which God teaches man, and it's a tool through which God influences the world. And as we begin our, our time together in this family series, I would like us to start right there. What is God's design in marriage? What is God's design in the family? And as we do so, I'm going to begin with a familiar passage. Um, uh, the passage leading up, in fact, to what we talked about this morning to husbands, commanding them to love their wives. I'm going to emphasize a, a little bit uh, of a different element of it, however. Ephesians 5, through 32 is the de facto passage in the Bible about the marriage relationship. We looked at it this morning. We'll be looking at it next week. It's also a very important passage describing the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. We considered that strongly this morning. We're going to begin here, and we'll consider marriage and family and God's design in it. In Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 24... We read this. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now again, this message is not going to focus on this. I'm going to continue in verses 25 through 27 in a moment. We focused on that this morning. 
We'll have to separate the individual messages as we focus upon each of these roles, but within the scope of these commands, we find a greater truth that the relationship between the husband and the wife is not just intended to function as a picture or in the way that Christ loves his church and in the way that the church submits to Christ, but it's supposed to illustrate the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. Paul tells women that their expectation to submit themselves to their husband is founded upon the fact that the church is expected to submit unto Christ. And then as we continue, uh, we read it uh, this morning, we read in verses 25 through 27, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So in like manner, the the husband is responsible to love his wife. We spoke of that this morning. And the manner in which he loves his wife is founded upon the fact that Jesus Christ has unconditionally loved the church. So that just as Jesus will one day, by virtue of the love which he has extended, present us unto himself as a beautiful and spotless treasure, so too can husbands But as we consider our focus this evening, God's design in marriage and family, I hope that the framework for marriage begins to become evident. That God designed the marriage relationship to reflect the relationship between God and His church. Marriage is more than just the means by which God has designed the perpetuation of the human race. Marriage is more even than man having a helpmeet. Marriage is a public testimony of Christ and of His church. A public testimony of the gospel. And notice how this plays out as the context continues. Paul, continuing in Ephesians 5, he says in verse 28 through 30, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Jesus loves and cherishes us because we are members of his body and he can do no less. So it is, as we spoke of this morning, husbands, you love and cherish your your wife because she is a part of your body and you can do no less less. You love her by loving, you you love yourself by loving her, excuse me, because your wife is your body. But secondly, by loving your wife the way Christ loves his church, you reflect Christ to your children and to the world around you. So it is that we peel back the curtain We step back. We see marriage as serving a larger purpose in society than simply tax deductions, efficient living, procreation. And as we continue with this concept, Paul helps us in verse 31 by saying this, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother 
and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Paul here is not just stating a fact about marriage. He's actually referencing the very first command that God gave as a part of his institution of marriage in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2.24. And so we learn our first important lesson about marriage and family, that biblical marriage is intended to reflect the gospel by demonstrating the relationship between Christ and his church. Now, I, I can't emphasize this enough. Husband and wife, your relationship with one another is bigger than you. Yes, husbands, love your wives. This is a very personal command. It's something you have to work on every day. Yes, wives, submit to your husbands. It's a very personal command. It's something you have to work on every day. So much so that, that you then have to work together on your marriage and communication. And you have to keep that marriage healthy. You have to spend time together. You have to focus on the marriage itself. Yes, it matters. But it's so much bigger than you. Your marriage is so much bigger than you. Have you ever wondered why society around us is so keen on destroying marriage? Why the vocal minority who demands that sodomites be allowed to be regarded as married are, are, are listened to, even though they're such a small percentage of our society? Why society will, will recommend living together rather than marrying? Have you ever wondered just what it is about the institution of marriage that threatens the godless and rebellious so much? Contained within the very concept of marriage, one man and one woman in a monogamous committed relationship for life, is a very small amount of gospel light which demonstrates the love and commitment which Christ has to his church. Even the unbelieving marriage is a small amount of gospel light about how Christ loves his church. So as society and culture fall farther into rebellion, as they dive deeper into the darkness of their own sinful hearts without even knowing why, marriage becomes repulsive to them. Why? Well, we know why. Marriage becomes repulsive to them because marriage, in its own way, reflects Christ. And his church. It's a design that God has made to reflect Christ. Everything about a monogamous and committed relationship between a man and a woman will be difficult for the rebellious to endure. And that because a monogamous and committed relationship between a man and a woman, even among unbelievers, is a positive reflection of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. Is it any wonder then that in the last days Paul warned us that one of the symptoms will be forbidding to marry? Consequently, this is also why divorce among believers is such a dangerous thing. Now I know that we have many divorced folks among our group here. We've talked about divorce before. We'll talk about it again. We know where the church stands on that. Uh, we know that divorce does not ruin a person's capacity to be used of God. Divorce is not an unforgivable sin. God can and will use divorce people just as he can and use anyone else, all of whom 
are sinners and none of whom are worthy of any of God's blessings. But on the authority of God's word, make no mistake, we know it from the word of God, God hates divorce and divorce is indeed wrong in his eyes. And the reason why this is the case is because in a very real way, divorce among believers destroys the picture of Christ and his church, which God intends marriage to reflect to society. Christ will never, ever divorce his church. He can't. He won't. He has made a vow. It's an unconditional vow. He has married us. He has betrothed himself to us. And he will not recant. Christ loves his church unconditionally, even in the worst of times. And as representatives of Christ, we reveal ourselves to ignore his example when we uh, allow for divorce, when we, when we see it as a normal thing. And we also muddy the lessons that marriage was intended to reflect. And so, in regard to marriage, God's design is that it reflects the gospel. Now, I mentioned already Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 in Ephesians 5 as he makes this point. And as we continue to understand God's design in marriage, let's go to that passage and see what it says. In Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, we'll pick up there. We read of God creating Adam, naming the animals, finding among him, among these animals, no companion for Adam, Adam finding no companion for himself. And we read, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made woman, made he a woman, excuse me, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. So here we see these other functions of marriage. We talked about marriage reflecting the gospel of Jesus Christ and indeed what a high calling. Married men and women, what a high calling that your relationship with your spouse is intended to reflect Christ and his church. But there are other functions as well. God causes Adam to sleep and he creates woman from him. Adam sees her to be his very flesh, his very bone, and so he calls her woman. And then we find the statement we just read in Ephesians 5.31... Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And as we put this picture together, we find that God created the institution of marriage to comprise a man and a woman who would join themselves together for the purpose of creating something more. Something different, something more, something better. Better together than they are apart. And this becomes our second point of understanding this evening as we kind of intertwine our application with our teaching. Point number two, biblical marriage is between a man and a woman who are more together than apart. Biblical marriage is between a man and a woman who are more together than apart. Now both concepts of this application 
are important. God designed marriage to be between a man and a woman. And, and that is without question, without ambiguity in Scripture. We already spoke of, of how the concept of the sodomite marriage mars the picture of Christ and His church. Everything in Scripture, from Genesis 2, where God institutes marriage, to Ephesians 5, where Paul instructs on marriage, to 1 Timothy 3, where you read the qualifications for pastors and for deacons in relation to their wives, and everything in between points to the reality that marriage is between a man and a woman. And by the way, uh, this is not really our point this evening, but God made them male and female. That's the big problem in this week, right? Last week, the last couple of weeks is our president blackmailing the states in order to uh, get public schools to allow boys into girls' restrooms and girls into boys' restrooms. And, and for the several weeks before that with North Carolina and all of the controversy there, um, this is a controversy over incontrovertible fact that boys are boys and girls are girls. They're born that way from the very basis level of the DNA. One can know whether it's a boy or a girl. Men are men, women are women. I, I'm, I'm assuming that this evening, okay? I'm assuming that men are men and women are women. And, and, and when I assume that, when I say marriage is between one man and one woman, I mean biological man and biological... I have to say that. I mean, I don't for you all, but isn't that silly that I even have to say that? Marriage is between a biological man and a biological woman. That's how God has designed marriage. That is marriage, biblical marriage. And the fact of the matter is this. Marriage is not a civil institution. It is a divine institution at its core. That means government cannot define what marriage is. God defines what marriage is. Now, marriage has been made a civil institution, and the government has a right to do so. The government has a right to take that which God has ordained and add a civil element to it. But they have no right to redefine it. And by the way, the church does not have that right either. The church has not been given the right by God to define what marriage is. God has defined what marriage is. And like with everything in the church, the church has no authority to speak for God, only to declare what has already been spoken. That is the church's role. We don't define doctrine. We identify doctrine. We don't define truth. We identify truth. And we proclaim truth. And so the church has no authority to say what, what marriage is and isn't. The church only has authority to proclaim what God has said marriage is, and thus, by extension, what it isn't. And what God has spoken in this is this. Man and woman are created to be joined together in marriage, whereby one man and one woman leave the authority of each of their parents to create a new unit, separate from their parents in authority, joined together by God into one effective spiritual entity so that they are one flesh, they are married. It must be a man and a woman, and in coming together, the scriptures make it clear they are more than they were, they are more together than they were apart. And one of the things that a man and a woman can do together, which they cannot do apart, is have children. 
And as we continue our journey, this is indeed what we find, that marriage is the foundation for family. As a man and a woman in a monogamous and committed relationship have children and begin to raise those children, families are created. And we know that this is God's design because just like marriage is everywhere mentioned in the Bible as being between a man and a woman, children are everywhere in the Bible mentioned as having a mother and a father. We read in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, just to prove our point here, children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Here, parents is correlated with a father and a mother, the two units that comprise a marriage, right? So we're just kind of taking simple pieces, putting them together to understand what we have here. Now, as with any scriptural principle, it highlights God's design, but not necessarily always reality. And let me make myself clear here. There are children that only have one parent, right? Be it by death, be it by divorce, be it by abandonment, be it by something else. There are children who have no parents, whether by death or abandonment or something, adoption changes the game. There are children who are adopted and are without question a part of a new family, even though it's not their biological blood relation, or maybe it is. And like with our contemplations on Ephesians 5, 22 and following, we're not going to dwell on the actual command today. No, and I'm not trying to, by, by saying what I'm saying here, I'm not trying to say that if you only had one parent or if you didn't grow up with parents for, for, for most of your childhood or for any of your childhood or if you were adopted or any of those things that you're outside of God's design. I'm not saying that. That's not, that's, the, the Bible doesn't say that. We, we see adoption laws in the, the Word of God. We see redemption laws. We see, we see plenty of precedent for us to understand that a family isn't always biological. But when we talk about God's design, and that's what I'm highlighting here, we recognize that God's intent, God's design, that the majority of families are intended to be made up of father, mother, and their children. That's, that's God's design. And then there are variations because we live in a world full of sin and death and those sorts of things and, and hardships. And, and that's okay. That's not wrong. So please don't take that the wrong way this evening. A biblically consistent marriage positions children best to be able to fulfill the goals of the family environment. And a part of which we read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, where God says this to particularly the parents. He says, These words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thy house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. As God teaches Israel about his expectations for them, he teaches them that he expects them to obey his word, but then he teaches them that he expects them to pass that teaching along. God expects parents to take responsibility for passing down the knowledge of God from their generation to the next generation. 
due to the unique levels of time and understanding that a parent has concerning his and her children, God has given the responsibility of teaching them to their parents. And so as the family lives together and learns together and works together and travels together, the parents who are more knowledgeable of the things of God and have experienced more of life and who know their children better than really anyone else could can teach their children. Now we read already in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 that children are commanded to obey and to honor their parents. That combined with the responsibility of parents to train up their children and we again see more of God's design in the family. So let's give you a third point this evening as related to God's design in the family. Point number three, you see it there, children have been designed by God to function best within a biblically consistent marriage structure and under the care and authority of their parents. Children have been designed by God to function best within the biblically consistent marriage structure and under the care and authority of their parents. This is God's design. If God hadn't designed it this way, then it wouldn't be found everywhere in Scripture. Children, honor thy father and mother. Well, what? Why is God saying it that way? Because that's God's design. A child is cared for by his parents, and he in turn subjects himself to their leadership and their guidance. In this way, the child is protected and provided for, not just physically, but also emotionally and spiritually as the parents seek what is best for their children, and the children obey and submit to their parents. Within the family structure a relation and relationship, this child finds peace, acceptance, protection, and discipline, all of which is necessary to form him into the person he needs to become. Fathers, your role, and we'll talk about this in four weeks, your role in protecting your daughter simply through showing them love and acceptance, through showing them affection, is tremendous. That's a role which has been given to the father until it's to be given to the husband. And it's one which can protect your daughter from so much damage because she won't have to go outside of the home to find the love that she will crave as she gets older. She will find that love in her father, not in an inappropriate way, but she will find the love and acceptance that she seeks until such time as a man comes along who is worthy to then continue giving her that love. This is consequently one of the primary reasons our church is what it is as a non-age segregated model and philosophy because as parents, your children are your responsibility. And the ability to learn as a family positions the parents to best understand what their children have heard, what their children have learned, and the work that still needs to be done. That's our philosophy, at least. That's what we believe. But just as with the marriage relationship, the design of the family works out a much deeper purpose intended to teach individuals and society about important truths about God. 
And the spiritual concept which the family parallels can be understood from Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, where we read this. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We find in these two verses dealing with the spiritual relationship of the redeemed, of the born-again believer with God, several concepts which borrow from the idea of family, don't they? If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior by placing your full faith and trust in His finished work, then you have been given the Spirit of God. You are led by the Spirit of God and are therefore, by virtue of a doctrine which we call the doctrine of adoption, we won't get into it this evening, a son of God. And Paul calls this Spirit, the Spirit of Adoption, whereby we call God our Father. Now, don't miss this, because the concept of God being our Father is intended to relate to us because of the relationship that we have with a physical, earthly Father. So much so that the Scriptures very regularly appeal to the Father relationship with a child to help us understand God. Jesus would teach in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, who if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to, unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good gifts to them that ask him? As Jesus teaches here, he appeals to the reality of an earthly father's love and care for his child to draw our understanding to the love which God has for us. And within a functional biblical family environment, both father and child should be able to connect to Jesus' teachings through their personal experience within the home. And as they do so, they should be able to, in an easier way, understand the character of God. The child should be able to fully relate to the concept that their father loves them, wants what is best for them, goes out of his way to bless them, and would never take their desire for blessing and turn it into a curse. The father should understand Jesus' teachings even deeper as he feels that love and that desire to bless and to care for his children. The connections go deeper than just the giving of gifts, however. The scriptures also appeal to the family relationship to demonstrate God's love through discipline. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 7, we read this, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening... God dealeth with you as sons, for what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? Here the writer of Hebrews appeals to the example 
of the reader's relationship with their earthly father to establish an understanding of God's dealings with them. That in the same way an earthly father would discipline their children in love, so much so that the, the writer of Hebrews says, look, what father doesn't discipline their children? What father actually loves his child if he doesn't discipline his child? And this connection is so strong, this, this appeal is so clear, that in the same way the earthly father would discipline a child in love, seeking to work out of them the wrong and the dangerous attitudes and actions, so too does God with his children. Work out of us the wrongs. Now we'll talk about biblical discipline later in our series, but the truth of God's word is that proper biblical discipline over children is a duty, not just an option, a duty delegated to the parents and is reflective of love toward a child, not hate. In fact, the concept of discipline is so strongly related to a father's love and faithfulness that in the next verse in Hebrews 12, we find the scripture tell us that if God does not chasten you, if you don't feel the chastening hand of God when you stray from him and rebel against him, you are not his child. That's how strong the relationship is. And so that brings us to our, our final consideration this evening. Consideration number four. Biblical families are intended to reflect the gospel by demonstrating the relationship between God the Father and His children. As within the marriage relationship, demonstrating the relationship between Christ and His church, so too, the family relationship is intended to demonstrate the relationship between God the Father and you as a son of God. And what this means is that the family, a believing family, is bigger than just your family. Your family, mother, father, children, your family can, in a very real way, become a reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a father loves his wife, as he provides for his family, as he disciplines his children, as he loves them, as he cares for them, as he nurtures them, he functions as a testimony of God, God the Father and God the Son, and his dealings with man. His biblical actions will help his children relate to the concept of God. Many of you, perhaps the older generation here, grew up with parents who did not properly reflect the Bible. And maybe as you read Matthew chapter 7 or as you read Hebrews chapter 12, you couldn't relate to that concept right off of a father. What, what father, when a child comes up and asks for bread, would give him a stone? Your father might do that. You can't relate to a father's love. Or what father would not discipline his children? Your father didn't discipline. You can't relate to that concept. And so it's taken a little bit more time for you to come around to the understanding of God. Perhaps as you've become parents, you've finally understood those concepts in a way you couldn't before because you had a bad example. But a biblical father, a godly father, your actions, fathers, in loving your wife, 
in loving and disciplining your children will teach your children how to relate to God. Your biblical actions will also teach them how to love God and obey God. That's what we tell our daughters. Why are we disciplining our daughters today? Not today, but now. Well, it's not just so that when they get older, they'll be well-behaved in church. It's because by teaching my daughters how to obey me and how to yield their will to me, I am also training them how to obey God, how to yield their will to God, because they will be learning the concept of choices and consequences. They will be learning the dangers of chastening, and they will be learning how to submit themselves to their authorities. And if they can learn to submit themselves to me, then that's a big step toward them learning how to submit themselves to God. Is it any wonder then that the family is so deeply under attack in our culture? Just as marriage is under attack in our culture? Is it any wonder that the concept of the nuclear family the husband and the wife and the two and a half children, is attacked by the godless. For the past two full decades, television has been seeking through the sitcom to deconstruct the biblical model of the family. In most television shows, the father is seen as a hapless, disinterested, bumbling buffoon who exists to bring money home and then to sit on the couch while his wife works, runs the home, and keeps the kids in line and literally knits the entire family together, right? That's, that's been the family for the last 20 years of sitcoms, probably longer. We could probably extend it to 30 or 40 years at this point. For the past two full decades, the idea of the strong female leader and a weak, passive husband is, has been the norm, and it is a direct attack on the family structure which God has designed within which a father leads his home, caring for his wife, leading and disciplining and teaching his children. Now, again, I say this as a template, a principle, not a law. There are, without questions, certain, certain circumstances where this has to change. Widows, you have to wear more than one hat sometimes. You have to be dad and mom. Disabilities, skill sets might mean that there's some degree of role reversal in the family, where the wife is working, uh, where both are working. Th these things happen. But what never changes, where a husband and wife both function within their roles, is that the father is the father leading his family in love, teaching and disciplining his children when, when the father is there. And can you see how deeply the godless society we are in opposes this biblical model? The same can be said of discipline, right? It's not just the husband and wife roles being reversed and the husband looking like a buffoon and the wife being the one to keep everything together. I remember when I was in elementary school, we'd go to these assemblies. And I, I don't know why, but I remember one of these assemblies and that song was on 
We believe that children are our future. Treat them well and let them lead the way, the song said. And there was this big child elevation assembly that we were to take a part in. It, it was and still is regularly preached in our society that discipline is wrong. To the extent that a parent who would discipline his child as the Bible commands, particularly through the physical discipline of the rod or spanking as we call it, is called a child abuser. In our society of deep hypocrisy, to ask children to follow instead of encouraging them to lead is seen as stunting their development. But in a biblical example, the father leads the children through a godly example and sound discipline into what is right. Can you believe we live in a culture where it's, it's seen as child abuse to lovingly discipline your child for wrongs, but it's not seen as child abuse to allow men to go into the women's bathroom. What a backwards culture we are living in. The importance of a biblical family does not stop there, however. A father's example in the home can make a huge difference concerning a person's ability to relate to God. I have known, and perhaps you have as well, people who have had trouble with the concept of God being their father because they have such terrible memories of their earthly father. They then impose these terrible memories of what it means to have a father upon their understanding of God, their heavenly father, and they literally cannot bear him in that image but within God's design. When Scripture speaks of a heavenly father, a child ought to be able to relate to God as one who loves them, who cares for them. A listening ear, a place of shelter and of comfort, someone who's always ready to give you a hug, someone who's always ready to give you sound advice. Even if it isn't a blood father, when a child has someone who functions as their father, loving them, caring for them, that child is given a small spiritual window into the nature of God, into his love. And when they hear of that love, when they hear God the Father loves you so much he sent his son to die on the cross for you, they can relate just that much better. And while all men and women have the opportunity to understand God on his terms, even without a good father figure, even without a good family environment, there's still the opportunity, don't get me wrong. The child who has grown up in a stable, biblical family model is that much closer to being able to relate to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so a biblical, functional family is a natural testimony to the world of God's design and functions as an avenue through which men and women, upon hearing the gospel and the teachings of the word of God, can relate unto it. Over the next five extra weeks after this, we'll explore many elements of God's design in marriage and family. Husband and wife relationship, parent-child relationship, but as we begin, it's important for us to know why it matters. 
husband, you heard, you heard the message this morning. Why does it matter so much that you love your wife, other than biblical obedience, obviously? Because you are an example of the gospel to your children and to your community, to your church. Wives, why is it so important that you submit? Because you are an example of the gospel to your church, to your community, to your children. That's why it matters. God's design in marriage and family is about providing a functional and stable unit through which the next generation can grow, not just the next generation of the family, but it can grow into the next generation of the church. Through which the next generation can understand and know God. A biblical model of marriage and family serves as a testimony as well, not just to the church, not just through our children, but to the world around us of God's design, thus, even in a small way, shining light into darkness. And to this end, it's important that we understand God's design for marriage and family so that we can fulfill God's purpose in marriage and in family. Let's close in prayer.